Episode 69 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Harry Routledge, who's an experienced high-performance practitioner, and he's previously the head of sports science and nutrition in the MLS with LAFC. So it was great to speak to Harry. He came on to talk about a number of different things. Um, We spoke about the first steps he took when building the MLS franchise and developing the, the sports science department. We spoke about building an effective department as well, so not just getting staff together and, and creating the department, but how he made that effective. We talked about creating a culture, because obviously when a club's created from scratch, um, not only are you having to create a culture, but you're creating a culture from scratch. There's nothing there before, so how he went about that. And then we also touched on leadership and all the different types of leadership that he's seen throughout his career so far. So it was great to have Harry on. Big thank you for him to come um, coming on and um, I hope you take plenty from the episode. Just to give a little update on our meetings, I think in the last episode I mentioned that our meetings were still on. Unfortunately, we've had to cancel um, the Rotherham United Network meeting, which is meant to be Wednesday this week. Um, due to everything going on with the coronavirus, it's just not the right time to be holding these meetings. So that meeting is now cancelled. We are going to rearrange it hopefully for later in the year. I've been in uh, communication with Ross Burberry at the club and they're really keen to still do it, as am I. So um, that will hopefully be confirmed. As soon as everything settles down, we'll get a date in place for that. Uh, The Fleetwood Town at the moment hasn't officially been cancelled, but the way it's looking at the moment, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to go ahead with that either. But just keeping an eye on social media, we will announce when that is officially uh, cancelled as well. So we apologise for that. Obviously, it's taken out of our hands, but we want to keep everyone as safe and well as possible. We don't want to be putting people at risk and doing meetings that we shouldn't be doing. And obviously, um, depending on when you listen to that uh, to this, but as I'm recording last night, the, the lockdown was announced. So we do need to stick to that. And um, I'm, I'm sure everyone out there is sticking to that. So it's obviously something that we can't run right now. But the good news is that it allows more time to get more podcasts out. So you you probably, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you'll probably know that the podcasts tend to go out on a Wednesday or a Thursday. This one's going out on a Tuesday. And that is because the next few weeks, I'm going to be putting out two podcasts a week. So that is to add more content for people that are out there, that are away from clubs, that might have a little bit more time. So hopefully that'll be beneficial for you guys um, to get a little bit more content and keep yourselves busy. So the first one, obviously, with Harry, and then there'll be another podcast going out later this week. So I'm really delighted to get some more content out for you guys. But yeah, a big thank you for Harry for coming on and um, hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, Harry. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, it went a bit quiet then. I'll go for it now. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 69. I'm delighted today to be joined by Harry Routledge, who's an experienced high-performance practitioner. We're going to dive into his background in a little bit. But Harry, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Really appreciate you giving up your time, mate. And I know we've got some good stuff to dive into today. So I'm looking forward to the podcast. Yeah, hopefully it's helpful and hopefully no one gets too annoyed with my really poor speech and bad accent. <laughs> They've got to put up with me all the time. I love it when people say that because with my Wiganese tones, like if they can deal with me, they can deal with anyone. You said it, mate, not me. <laughs> <laughs> let's dive in, Harry. So let's go into your background because I know there's, there's 
loads of opportunities you've had and, and roles that you've had and we just had a little chat off air as well about some of the influences on your career so far so I think it'd be great to dive into it so do you want to take us back um, to where it all started and then just take us through your career so far yeah absolutely Ben uh, so like most of us within the industry I started my uh, my degree at Liverpool John Moore University doing sport and exercise science um, I guess most of us sort of go through that process not fully understanding where we actually want to go, but we know we've always got an interest in in sport and performance. Uh, following doing my undergrad, I then enrolled on my exercise physiology master's, which was probably one of the most difficult and challenging challenging years of my life from a, an academic and personal aspect, but I probably learned, learned a lot in that year uh, around things like time management and how best to utilize your time. Um, and obviously a lot of knowledge from an exercise physiology point point of view. And then subsequently from that, uh, completed my PhD in under the supervision of uh, Professor James Morton. Again, a mentor in my career and someone that still influences my practice today. And then from a practical point of view and from a practice point of view, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to go and work over uh, in Australia for Port Adelaide in the AFL under Darren Burgess. An opportunity that probably has shaped everything I do today. I learned so much in, in Australia, in the AFL, not just from Berger himself, but the members of staff. Um, we'll go into it a bit, in a, I'm sure, in a bit, but I was a bit like a sponge over there, just trying to absorb as much information and learn as much as I can. Following on from that, I got the opportunity to go and work in the Premier League when Marco Silva was the manager at Watford. Um, again, a brilliant experience, very different experience, much more of a how to, how to place yourself within an environment and an ecosystem, if you will. Um, something that's key I believe in, in high performance sport especially at the very top level um, and from that I then got the opportunity to go and be head of sports science at Los Angeles Football Club in the MLS that was an opportunity that I couldn't really turn down it was one where we had a blank canvas to go and build and develop a team under uh, Bob Bradley the manager a b- totally blank canvas and one where it was a bit like okay we're here now how do we get this thing up and running and how do we start winning games? A challenge in itself, but one that was successful in, in our second year there where we, we broke the points record and managed to win the supporter shield. So that's sort of where I was from a practical point of view. And then following my time in LA, I decided after my, after my two years there that I would move back to the UK. Um, as I've sort of alluded to, I spent a lot of time away from the UK and at some points it starts to become that family's a little bit more important. So now I'm back in the UK and waiting for that next opportunity. Yeah. And it's something that I want to dive into with you because I'm really interested in the sort of blank canvas over at LA. But just before we go into that, I think it'd be great to dive into some of your mentors. Obviously you mentioned Burjo, but any of the other people that you've have been key, key influences on your career so far and on what you've taken from them. Yeah, probably the biggest one from a from a practice point of view has to be Virgil. Um, from a, I guess I guess everyone knows Virgil from as like a, a leading expert and, and he is an absolute expert in his field. Um, so knowledgeable and got a way of pushing the boundaries, if you will. And that's something that I believe in as well. I believe we can you can push players and athletes not past the limit, but in an aggressive but controlled way. 
And I believe that builds robustness within players. And that's something that Burjo instilled in, instilled in us in, in Australia. I also think that the biggest impact on my career is, is Burjo itself, but Port Adelaide as a, as a club. There's some brilliant practitioners there that work and some to, to, take, to take for for their brilliant practice. So people like Ian McEwen, uh, a strength coach, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable. Uh, a guy called Stuart Graham was a sports scientist. I probably learned from a sports science and load management point of view, I learned most from, from Stu. His knowledge was second to none. And I used to spend hours and hours and hours just sat with him talking about load and progressions and the best way to, to manage athletes. And also on top of that, a guy called Tim Parham, who's now at Arsenal. Uh, from a rehab perspective, Tim, again, second to none. Just a brilliant, brilliant practitioner in in that sense and his knowledge of how to get players back to fitness and utilizing science and evidence-based practice was brilliant. And then the other person that's had a massive influence on my career is a guy called Gavin Benjafield, who I work with in LA. Um, I met Gavin when I was in Australia, actually. He came over when he was at Ajax and we, we sort of got speaking then and sort of hit it off straight away. And me and Gav worked very closely at LA to, to build the program that we had there. Um, and those two have been influential on my career. And from an academic point of view, um, Professor James Morton has been massively influential on my career, not only from a, a learning standpoint, but he's, the, the trust he's instilled in me over the time to, to offer me the PhD and to influence my practice from a, from a thinking point of view, making, making me critically think about the way we do things and how we can potentially do things in a better way. So those three people, or those numerous people, I should say, have had a massive influence in my career and continue to today. There's some pretty good names there to, uh, to face <laughs> your, your mentors off. Like, there there's must be some top knowledge that you've got from those guys. Um, I think it'd be good to touch on something that we've just spoke about off-air as well in terms of when you obviously you've worked in in two well three countries including the UK but two countries in terms of the US and and Australia and we spoke about some of the challenges that you sort of face in that environment being away from home so do you want to touch on that and obviously we've mentioned as well about being involved in SNC sports science in the sport 24/7 and and the benefits of being back home as well so do you want to go into some of that that we just touched on yeah, absolutely. I think um, the biggest one is when when you go abroad, and I was I was only 20, 21 when I moved to Australia, and you are quite young and you are sort of thrown in the deep end. But for anyone, and the biggest advice I would give to anyone who got to move, like work abroad, and don't go wrong, you learn so much from doing it. You've got the chance to immerse yourself in the whole culture, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And that's the best learning, the, the best learning opportunity you get. You get to fully immerse yourself in, in the practice. But from a, taking the practice out of it, you learn a new culture. And a big one for me is you learn relationships with people and the relationship and the, the, or the ability to build relationships is something that has stayed with me and you utilize it every day you work in, in sport. Australia, for example, you move to Australia and the Australian culture is very different to the, the British culture. But the other thing is you also don't realize that there's there's two big communities in, in Australia in terms of their people. You have the Aboriginal community, which is one that I'd never been exposed to or never even really heard about naively. 
and they're, and they are they are the native Australian people, and understanding how to in, engage those that that culture, if you will, is very different. From an American point of view, one of the big things that was difficult not a difficult learning experience for me, but one that I learned quickly is that in Australia and in the UK, we can be quite direct with how we speak to people. And if, for example, you're in a, uh, a morning meeting as a performance department, in Australia especially, we would openly have those hard questions. And Virgil is very forthcoming in his way of asking those hard questions because ultimately we're trying to get the best for our athletes and the most out of it. But in America, there's a little bit of a different, a different culture where people aren't so used to those direct questions and it can come across abrasive. And that was something that I found initially. People found thought I was coming across abrasive when that was not, not my nature, but it was the culture that I was going into and I wasn't fully understanding of, of that culture. So having an understanding of the culture you're going into and the environment and the ecosystem that you're going into is absolutely critical. But the other, the other big thing that, and one of the reasons that I've moved back to the UK is you, you immerse yourself so much in, in work that your free time is limited. So your ability to, to make friends or get to experience parts of the country can be difficult and you end up spending all of your time with people at work. So your ability to take yourself out of the environment can be difficult. And obviously you're so far away from home that when your family is important, it becomes a key part of this and then sometimes you've got to make the hard decision to, to step away and get close to your family for the, for the better of yourself and from, from a personal point of view. Yeah, definitely. That I think it always comes back down to that, doesn't it? You need that support around you. And obviously you can take loads from what you've done. And, and there's like we spoke about before, there's, there's massive positives and learning experiences out there, but you do need that support, don't you? Of, of friends and family. Absolutely, it's, it's critical. Um, I was speaking to John Newton the other day about this. You you need that support network around you because, and it has to be right for the for the whole support network. So whether that's your wife, your girlfriend, your fiance, whatever that may be, whatever your journey in in sport, unfortunately, it's got to be a a two way thing where it's right for you and those other people because that support network is absolutely critical. Come on. One thing I was, I was just going to go into just before we, we go into your time at LA is with all your learning experiences and obviously the people that you've mentioned and, and the sports you've worked in as well, so especially the, you're working in the AFL, what do you think are some key things you're going to take into your next role? The key thing for me, and it's something that you hear a lot about, but it's so true, is relationships and if you if you haven't got ability an ability to build relationships with staff, coaches, players, you're you're sort of sticking yourself behind the black ball, if you will, because in order for us to be good at our practice, we have to have relationships with people and players are people at the end of the day. If you if you're wanting a player to do XYZ from a physiological point of view, if you have no relationship with that person, then it can be very difficult to get players to buy into what you're trying to do or trying or trying to achieve. But that's the same with staff as well. If you think, if you take LAFC for example, you're, it's a brand new franchise. So not only are you going into an environment where there's new players that have never met each other, there's new coaching staff, there's new staff amongst yourselves. There's no, no one's got a relationship with anybody when you first go in there. 
granted the coaches may know each other because their Bob will have brought them in to coach together from their experiences but I'd say 95% of the organisation is all new so you've got to build relationships very quickly because you start and the season starts or pre-season starts and it's like right, we, we're here to win so we've got to have relationships with everybody very quickly that's the biggest learning thing I probably I probably learned and Something I'll take with me as long as I work in this this industry is that building relationships is the is critical to most of our practice. Yeah, we've touched on that time and time again. It always comes up with coaches and practitioners that that's the real key. In the in the episode recently with John Hartley at Villa, he talked about that about understanding each other's roles and having these relationships in place, and it's crucial, isn't it? Absolutely, it's crucial to the whole process. Now let's dive into your time at LA. So going into this, it really fascinates me because we've spoken to coaches before that have gone into a program and obviously the club is already formed and there's a, there'll be um, some sort of training program going on. Even if it was, we've had previous guests that have gone on before that have gone into clubs where there isn't so much like an S&C program or a sports science program and they've had to create something. But in this case, you're going into a brand new club, aren't you? So a club that's been formed and what was the approach from there? Yeah, it's, you're spot on. If you speak to most people and, and they get a new role and it may be going into a new department where there's been something in place before. So you've got a base to work from and you can sort of adapt and change things as you see necessary. The biggest, the biggest challenge you've got with an MLS franchise is like you say, there's, there's nothing there. And for me, I think, how I started and where it all started, it was actually in the, is the interview process for one is I was interviewed by the GM and, and by uh, Bob, the manager. And I asked Bob a question in the interview process. I was like, what do you want from a sports scientist? Because it's all well and good having the philosophies that I want, but ultimately I, the, the, my philosophies have got to align with the coaching style and the game model, if you will, of what the coaches are trying to achieve. And that's sort of the basis for, for, for what, where we work from and we sort of took it in the sense that okay not only have we got everyone's new we've also not got a training ground so we're training out at UCLA so you train out at UCLA for the first 12 weeks you've got to be out of UCLA by one o'clock in the afternoon so that's a challenge in itself straight away how do we ensure that we're doing everything everything we want to try and get done so not only enhance performance but make sure we're ready for the season when time is a massive restriction so we sort of started with the process of, right, our, we don't know the game style. We're not sure how Bob wants to play, but we've got some key key philosophies that we know are going to be crucial in how we play and also reducing the risk of injury. And some of those key things was trying to build an aerobic base in the players. We know they've had a long time off. We're not sure how Bob's going to play or we're not sure what, what that looks like, but we know that from an aerobic point of view, there's going to be an aerobic element to how we play. So let's build some aerobic conditioning into training straight away. We also know high-speed running, critical in um, football and any football around the world. So let's build some exposures to high-speed running. Is it going to be right for the game style? We're not sure, but we'll go with that as our two main key philosophies from a training point of view. We slowly integrated technology into the into the program. So we use GPS straight away. Um that was really all we did initially. Let's try and get some an understanding of these players and, and their response. From a, a gym point of view, it was very difficult to obviously utilize any facilities we did or didn't have. So we went with some 
some basic movements. The strength coach, Daniel Guzman, uh, went with some very basic basic movements that we believed in and, and we ran with those in a circuit type fashion because, like I say, time was, time was a, a massive restriction. And then we also just tried to do things that we, we knew were going to help. So recovery was key. We tried to get nutrition as, as good as we can in the environment that we had um, and sort of ran with that. Again, like I say, a lot of it came down, came down to communication with the coaches and trying to better understand what they, the game style they were trying to play and how we, how we trying to align with that to ensure that we're putting the players in the best physiological state when we get into the start of the season, but also utilising what we can from a, um, from a recovery and nutrition standpoint. On top of that, not only did we have the, the struggles with no training ground and that side of it, but for our first six games were, were on the road. So you're spending your first six weeks of, of travel and it's commercial travel in MLS. So everything is with the general population. So another thing we tried to implement from day one was, was good practice from a travel standpoint. So making sure that we, we stayed in LA time when we traveled to a different state, we tried to utilize compression tights for flight travel, snack bags, massive emphasis on hydration and hygiene during these, these trips this um the travel through america and there were some of the big key blocks building blocks we sort of put in place early doors and luckily we it, we started off well i think we won our first four games that year all on the road so yeah you sort of have a very blank canvas to work from but if you believe in your philosophies and you can sort of align it to what what the coaches want you can sort of get some good work in there and it worked out well for us in that first year and how did that all progress? So obviously when when the when the season started, I'm guessing it was a case of the coaches having some sort of philosophy, but that must have progressed throughout the season. So how did that like affect your practice? So especially when we're talking about the aerobic conditioning, high speed running exposure, um, obviously the, the the gym and the strength based stuff was probably more affected. I'm guessing on facilities and and what the access that you guys have, but more more looking at sort of the tech, the aerobic aerobic condition, high-speed running, how did that progress throughout the season when that game model came into play? Yeah, what we what we decided to do was we were, we said, right, let's if we take if you take the the notion of chronic load as a as a four-week block, we said that okay, let's get through the first two chronic cycles. In that we'll have some we'll have some MLS game data. So we'll understand what the, the actual game demands are. And from that we can then work. So ultimately what happened was we understood that we weren't training the boys hard enough for how how they were, they were needed to play. So from that, we started to do things where we increased our exposure of intensity in blocks of in drill blocks. So whether that drill was four times six minutes or five four minutes, however it looked, we were always trying to not always, but on our on our big day, which was a minus three for us there, we always try and work above match intensity. So that was developing the intensity which the boys were training. Ultimately allowing them to be more physiologically adapted to, to the game style. From that, we, we, we started to understand that the counter-pressing style that the, that the coaches wanted involved a lot of sprinting and some sprint exposure that you could argue was super, like, super maximal intensity, so above now upset of max. So we started to introduce a lot more max efforts um, for, the, for the uncontrollable part of the game. So... With, with the counter-pressing nature, if we do turn the ball over and we have to go quick, have we made sure that the boys are exposed to these really high-intensity efforts to ensure that they're not going to break down? 
and like I say, over time that started to develop and we started to build a better relationship with the coaches and understand exactly what they required and ultimately our the physiological demands we were putting on the players during training sessions started to increase and we started to get some really robust and players that were able to, to, to play the game style of the coaches. I just wanted to give you a few updates on our online community. So we now have five over five hours of webinars available on the community and we are in the process as i put this out of um uploading the next webinar as well so there's going to be some brand new content going on for our community members um along with 10 network meeting presentations as well so our network meetings are run across the uk and we are we always have presenters on the meetings we record the presentations and they're uploaded onto the community. So you can go and watch those back um, when you become a community member. We've also got a bonus Q&A. So if you listen to the podcast with Fergus Connolly, he also did a bonus Q&A for our community members. That is also available on the community. And we have just uploaded the previous episode to episode 68, Coping with the Coronavirus, um, the YouTube video of that podcast with Andy Johnson, Joel Carter and Ross Bennett is now available on the community as well. So you can get all that plus loads more by going and signing up footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab. You can if you sign up there you get a free month on the community and then it is only £4.99 per month after that going forward. But when the network meetings are back up and running all the meeting presentations will be uploaded along with future webinars. Um, we've also got the forum discussion on there as well. So there's some good stuff going on with the forum at the moment. So go and get involved. Footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there, get yourself a free month and then just use this time to delve in some of the, some of the information we've got up on there. Enjoy the second part of the podcast with Harry. And that'll obviously get more, that'll get clearer, won't it, when the relationships are formed with the coaching staff and they get stronger, but then also the more games are played because you see how the players are going to have to adapt. You'll see areas that they'll need more work with. And it's obviously a model that will progress throughout the season, but it's really interesting to hear like how you guys started and using things like the MLS game data. And that's a starting point, isn't it? And then you, you work from there. Absolutely. It's your, it's what we tried to base most of that first year off was, We'll, we'll utilise our game data that we're getting and, and, and we'll try and work towards that and work as a as a notion, as a relative of game of that game intensity or what, what, what that game what the game requires. And like you say, over time we started to understand what the coaches required from each player. We started to get much more individualised programmes for each player because like you say, you've got initially when you start you've got you haven't got a handle on, on any of these players. So you're sort of not standing in the dark, but you're you're just utilizing what what you believe in and what you believe right, and that develops over time, and ultimately you you end up getting a, a program that fits all players, and players start to get much more much more robust to the the nature of what of what you're trying to achieve. It, it's a real test, isn't it, of the skill of the practitioner going into that environment? Because where you where you go into an environment where there's already a program in place, you can obviously add some aspects to it but from here you're you're having to go off your experience and off the information that you've got which could be not, not that much at that point at the start of the season is that fair to say exactly and we um we took the we took the notion of the big building blocks what can we really have a 
an impact on initially and hang our hat on and say, yes, we believe in this and sort of go with those notions initially. And like you say, it develops over time. Once you, once we got into our own training ground, you can then start to put a better nutrition structure in place, a supplements program. You've got a, a gym facility. We started utilizing things like the four stacks, but you've got to put these big building blocks in, in place initially and sort of work from them. And then, like you say, you just sort of roll with it, roll with the punches and hopefully the things you believe in and your experiences previously will, will definitely aid in the process. And fortunately for us and the process that we put in place, we instilled in the second year as well. And things started, worked well and we got, we got a good grasp with the players and things developed and we had success. And right, we could touch on, on travel and the travel demands and I know you've, t- you've touched on it briefly there. We did do an episode previously with Johnny Northeast at, at DC and he went into loads of detail on the demands over in the MLS because obviously the scale of the, the travel but obviously the the added demand of, of um, not being able to fly privately and all that sort of stuff. And I know you've touched on it briefly there in terms of staying on LA time, hydration, but was there anything else that you sort of put in place initially with the travel? Yeah, again, it's very difficult because I'm sure Johnny will touch on this and me and Johnny speak regularly about the struggles of the MLS and how it, how it can be difficult, but you're sort of dictated to by your team admin and when they book your flights, it becomes very difficult. They go, well, you're flying then and that's the only flight we can get and away you go and that can affect everything from training times to it can affect everything to be honest there was there was times when we'd have where the coaches would be like oh we spent we've just had five hours on the plane but we want to train as soon as we get there so you're going to get to the hotel and then take the players 45 minute bus ride to the to the training the training center and we had numerous conversations with the coaches about just and one thing we did instill was a regular sort of and I learned this when I was in Australia because again you have travel over there is as soon as you land straight into the pool and some mobility and some work in the pool, just to try and flush the legs more than anything. Um, but yeah, like I say, some of the, some of the, some of the decisions were against what the coaches wanted sometimes, but we were trying to think of the best ways we can get around this. And it can be difficult when you've got, um, these long travels to try and make sure the players are in the best physiological state. And again, the other ones that become difficult is when, if you're on, say you've got two games on the East Coast, there was a time point last season when we spent about 12 days on the road. And not only are you looking from a physiological point of view there, but you've also got to look at it as from a mental point of view. Players are away from families and they're sleeping in not their own beds for 12 days, which can be difficult. So one thing we did we did look into and we started to get off the ground was making the boys travel with their own pillows, especially on these really long travel, these long time points when we were away in hotel beds. We had some some success with that. Players said they reported that they felt like they were sleeping better. Um, that's taken from a little bit of what Team Sky or Team Ineos do, where they travel with matches around the world. So trying to get some more familiarity from a sleeping perspective, that helped. Um, but again, it's the mental side of it. So trying to come up with ways that we can engage the players so that it's not constantly cooped up in a hotel. So we try and advise them on places they can go to try and do things, whether it be bowling or a a team meal out we we try to get the players out at the hotel as much as we can especially on those long those long times when you're away from from friends and family and and children for that matter um so that was a little bit of a, a the mental side of it that you also try and tap into where you can yeah it's a it's a big challenge that isn't it 
because I think coach in the UK will look at it and obviously we, we've talked previously about away days and the episode I think it was 58 with James Wilson spoke about some of the things he put in place with the clubs he's worked at and he talked about the pillows and using loved ones like aftershave perfumes things like that and like there are little tricks you can do with the players aren't there but it is a challenge but we're taking it from the UK on a much smaller scale to suddenly over to the US where you're talking across time zones, like you're so far away from home, aren't you? And like you say, you could be there for a good few days, not just there and back overnight. Absolutely. And the the hardest one is the, is, is the commercial travel because that, that flight may get cancelled for two hours. So you've got players at an airport for two and a half hours and you're going, well, what can we really do here? And, in those cases when that would happen, I would just do a loop of the airport and try and find some places where we could advise the boys to get food and trying to maintain some sort of hydration status and some and some food in these boys because you know that when you when you land, it's two and a half hours later than what you expected you're going to get there. So that's going to affect sleep and that stuff is is, is a constant a constant battle and a constant it's a constant evolving process and I don't think anyone's nailed it yet. And again, I don't think you'll be able to nail it because. You've got so many variables that are not in your control and you just got, like I say, roll with the punches when it comes to that sort of stuff um, and hope for the best and do everything in place that you can to try and mitigate any sort of travel fatigue. But until until things like when the MLS sort of gets chartered flights for all travel, it's going to be a constant battle. And there's no doubt it affects, it affects performance because you can be the best practitioner in the world, but some of the stuff is just totally out of your hands and out of your control. Yeah, definitely. So it's a case of adapting, isn't it? Like you say, when, when that delay's in place, you're doing that scan of the airport and, and advising on food and things like that. You don't get taught that in the textbooks. That's something that's come from experience, isn't it? Exactly. And a, and a lot of those things is, is through experience. And if you're, if you're new, into, if you're going straight into this fresh from university, you're like, this isn't a textbook, what I'm going to do, but a lot of it is just the people skills and just using your initiative to think, how can we, how can we make the best out of this really bad situation? Yeah, definitely. So just to go back to um, when you first go into LA, what I wanted to go into was the approach you took in terms of building the department, but not only getting bodies in and obviously getting, getting roles established, but also how you then get that department to work effectively. Yeah, it's. I guess. I guess the key is to build a culture, and it's not only a culture within your department, but you're trying to build a culture within the whole club, in essence, from a from a performance standpoint. And and what you're really trying to build is these non-negotiable behaviours that that you believe are key. So, whatever, however that may look like, one of the things we tried to do was, and I've alluded to it before, but build the relationships first because culture and non-negotiable behaviours are all built and stem from from respect so if you can build a respect and a relationship with players and other staff then when you are trying to instill something new whether it be a force play whether it be a different training style whether it be a new drill that you believe is best for the team once you've got the respect and the relationship of the per the, the people you're trying to get that from that's key and um, on top of that is that all stems from trying to build and get people to believe and instill the key philosophies that you believe in. Understanding the, the key scientific knowledge around what you're trying to do also has a massive impact because if you're going in there and you, you've built a relationship with a coach, but you're trying to build something and implement something that's a little bit different than what you, 
than what's gone previous. If you don't understand the scientific knowledge behind that and the underpinning knowledge of that, and the coach asks you straight away and you don't know the answer, then instantly the culture and the the, the performance element you're trying to instill just gets just gets wiped out. And um, I suppose one of the things we tried to do at, at LA, and I think we were quite successful, is we're obviously trying to build this culture, but it's not a do's and don'ts. It's not you have to do this. It's not a it's not a strict sort of yes and no, or you have to do this and don't do that. But it's about saying this is this is what we believe in, and this is how we're going to do things. So simple things like whether it's where the players put the GPS pods after after training, whether it's where they put the heart rate straps. It's that's a culture you're instilling that, and it's not you do do this or you don't do that. It's this is what we believe in. This is where that goes, and then you start to build a culture on top of that. And I think the key to all of it, and I've alluded to it a little bit, is that the relationship with the players is, is the key because, in essence, the players are the one that are going to drive the culture and throw the culture through the club. The staff can try as hard as they can, but there's a lot more players than there are staff. So if you can build that relationship with the, with the athletes, because pe- athletes are people at the end of the day. So once you've built that relationship and you can try and instill the culture on the, on the players, then that is 95% of the argument. And we, st- we tried to build that culture from day one. So even though we were in an environment that wasn't ours, the culture of, okay, boys, for training, you always do this, this, and this. We always have a, a prehab session or however it may look, you start from day one, but it's not a, you do do this. It's a, this is how we're going to do things. And you build the culture that way. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when we look at some clubs and some cultures, we think that the, the sort of situation is all ideal. And if only we had it like that, but it's obviously not been the case over there, but you've, you've still managed to build a culture and create a department that have effectively worked together. So when we look at it, it's like I'm sure there was many things that you could have said. I'd much prefer to have a, a access to a gym whenever we want it or whatever it was. But these relationships, like we talk about time and time again, the communication between the staff members, that's the key point, isn't it? And, and the relationship with the players. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I'm, and I suppose I learned this when I was in Australia, is one of the key things that I, I tried to do in Australia, and Australia was hard because instantly being English going into an Australian sport you're at a disadvantage because you're an easy target straight away and that's just the nature of it unfortunately you're English you've got an English accent so you're an easy target but what I tried to do initially is take three key stakeholders and say that if I can get the, the captain on side and he believes into the philosophy I'm trying to I'm trying to go with the head coach and Virgil if those three people believe into what I'm trying to do then they will also push the philosophy and in essence the culture and I suppose that was the same in LA. Once, once Bob and the coaching staff were believed in the performance culture we were trying to build, then they also bled that through the club to the players, but also getting the players on side. So we all know you have very different people within, within a, a training room and very different personalities. So maybe Carlos Vela isn't the right person to try and push a philosophy. He does his leadership and his, his culture is driven on the pitch, whereas you may get an American native who is very vocal in the locker room and drives the young players. So maybe if we try and lock into him first, he will then drive that culture. And that's something, that's probably a key thing again that I learned in Australia is you can, you can sort of pinpoint people to push your philosophy along with you. And ultimately you're trying to get the playing group to buy into your, your philosophies, your beliefs. So if you can target players or 
people that have got a very big big say within the organization that can help as well i think that's a great point and going way back to i think episode 11 with damien hughes he talked about cultural architects and that's essentially what you're talking about there is people that can they affect and and positive positively affect the the rest of the the camp um and then also with mick clegg he talked about obviously one of the famous ones in terms of roy Keane. Um, drive, driving the team forward, he got he got Roy Keane on side, and that affected the the rest of the playing staff. And that's exactly what you're talking about there, isn't it? And absolutely, you you very quickly realise who the influential people are within an organisation and within a playing group. And again, that comes from experience of being in these environments. Unfortunately, there's no textbook that teaches you the the personable skills that that are required, but you stick yourself in these environments and you quickly learn or you don't. It goes one of two ways. You either learn and you understand. And if you don't learn, then unfortunately it becomes very difficult within these environments. I also think that's interesting where you're talking about, obviously um, in, in your case was Carlos Vela uh, on the pitch was very influential, but I'm guessing off the pitch wasn't so much. Like That comes down to experience and knowing the players, doesn't it, as well? Because if you're just simply looking at the players that are influential on the pitch, they might not have that that architect, that cultural architect sort of ability. Um, whereas you do have to really know the players to know the players to target or all the staff members to target the ones that you're going to try and influence. Absolutely, and that's a little bit of a, le- a leadership trait, if you will. So Carlos was, and players and staff are generally quite similar from a, from a leadership point of view. Carlos would do his leadership on the on the field. He would he would lead with with how he played, and like and like you alluded to, you have other players that sort of lead from from a vocal point of view, and staffs are very similar like that. Like you're all trying to leadership is is for me is, and I've learned this over over the ta- over the time that I've been doing this is, it's a respect in essence. If you're if you're driving leadership, then you've got to have the respect of the people you're trying to drive, and you've got to try and build and display a commitment to the goal so if you take Carlos as an example he will display a commitment to the goal of winning on the field he may not shout he may not be vocal in the locker room but he's emphasizing and showing a, a, a delivery of trying to achieve a same goal and we can turn that from into staff as well right <laughs> the leaders that I've worked under and their former directors or heads of performance they are in essence the, the leader of the group but they've all been they've all had a respect of the rest of the group from from what they're trying to trying to achieve, and I suppose it all comes back to the old, the the transformational leadership model, if you will. So how can we how can we influence others to to sort of push forward and take forward a collective goal? Um, I think that's key, and and honesty in what you're doing is another one. Players and and staff, if you're honest in your approach, and for example, if if you if you go into a performance meeting of a morning, and as a group you've come up to a collective goal of what you believe is right for each player or, or the day and then people may go and speak to coaches after and, it, and it's not the same message then that's not showing great leadership as a, as a group and it's not instilling, instilling a, a group and, a, and demonstrating leadership qualities that are collective of the whole group and I suppose that you can see that in players and in staff and you sort of develop your own leadership style as you, as you go through this and I'm lucky enough to have been influenced by in my opinion one of if not the best in Burjo and um, 
yeah, his, his leadership style is to give autonomy to his staff. And I believe that's if you if you get good people around you and you give autonomy to your staff, then you can build a really good department. And we were lucky enough to have that at LA. Gavin would give us the autonomy to, to do our job and and develop the players. And we'd always feed back into him. And ultimately it worked. And his leadership style was as equally as good as Darren's. And obviously you don't have to dig people out or mention anyone's names or anything like that. And it might not be something that you've experienced too much with the roles you've been in, hopefully. But have you seen that work the other way where um, there hasn't been the trust, there hasn't been the honesty or the respect and and what sort of approach did, have, did you did you take or would you take in that sort of circumstance? Yeah, 100%. Um, I'm lucky enough to say that, well, actually, probably I have, have probably experienced it and and, it, and it, can, it can become quite quite hard to be around and if people haven't got trust in what, in what you believe from a staff point of view and people are doing their own things and going sort of left of what, of what the direction is. It, it can be hard and it can have, it can lead to difficult conversations. But one thing that I have learned is that if you can get everyone on side and believe in the process, and it's also having the hard conversations, I think is a massive one within a performance department. If you've got the ability to have hard conversations with each other, rather than holding things in that can, can boil underneath the surface and cause more of an issue, the hard conversations is ultimately where you get the most reward because if you if you air those things that you don't believe are right, take an example of if you if there's a head of rehab who decides that he's going to do X Y Z with said player today, and I, for example, may ask the question and go, "Why is that?" If the person who's if the person who can't answer the question and they've got no no rationale behind that that again can cause an issue, but it's having that, the autonomy and the, the ability to have those hard questions can really sort of develop and push the performance department forward. Or it can go the other way. If people are just sitting on the hands and not having those conversations, I've seen it go negatively in, in the same way. So I think it's just having autonomy across staff and making sure that everyone's, and we use the, the word holistic approach where everyone's on the same page. I think if you've got an open and honesty amongst yourselves to make sure everyone is on the same page, Ultimately, everyone's striving for the same goal, and whether that's driven by the other members of staff and the performance director or the performance director solely, in my opinion, everyone everyone's got their own everyone's got an opinion, and everyone should be open enough to have those conversations and drive the whole department forward. Otherwise, it can go, like you say, um, not in the best way. And that all comes down to the environment that we create, doesn't it? We want to create that environment where we can have those discussions about people falling out or taking it personally you should be able to challenge people and and in a positive way absolutely i believe if like everyone should be able to be challenged and everyone should actually take challenges as a positive as, as rather than a negative because ultimately by being challenged you're only developing yourself and a lot of that a lot of my question around that comes from completing my phd it allows you to critically think and if someone says they're going to do something then you can maybe ask that question, not the why, but think about it in a different light. Um, and I believe that's a positive because, as we all know, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. Like there's not a there's not an ideal way to do anything, and everyone's got a different opinion and a different philosophy, which is absolutely fine. But it's about being able to have those hard conversations within your environment, within your culture. And the ecosystem you're in, um, that's really, really critical. And I believe it's a positive 
for anyone in that, in that situation. Yeah, without doubt. And again, that's come up in so many previous episodes that the, the most successful teams, and I'm talking players, but also the, the staff, and it all comes down to having that environment where we can have those discussions. And like you said, the, the hard discussions sometimes as well, or hard conversations. Yeah, you, you, you probably learn more from those hard conversations. Um, some of my experiences in Australia, especially when I, I go into an environment different to LA where there is a, there is a pro- program, there is a department and you go in there and on your first day they're asking the hard questions and you can be a bit taken back by it. But as long as you've got confidence in what you believe in and your education and like I say, the scientific knowledge underpinning what you're trying to achieve, then there's, there's no wrong answer. To, there's no wrong answer to any of those hard questions, but you learn a lot from those hard questions and that, and that environment and the ecosystem. And I've learned a lot of that from different cultures and, Different parts of the world do, do it different ways and different managers do it different ways. Some managers may be hard and shout and some managers may have conversations in different ways. But like I say, it's understanding your environment and the ecosystem that, that you're within will only develop develop your skill at having those hard conversations. And it doesn't always mean that you have to change your approach, does it? Sometimes it just means that you justify what you're doing. And it could be a case of, you justifying it and, and really digging into why you're doing it. And, it and it could mean that that's just a case of educating other practitioners and, and just giving that justification on the reasons why. Absolutely. And the big one for me, and I, I know I've alluded to this before, but as long as your backing has got some scientific rationale behind it and it's not sort of just, I believe this because it's what I've always done. Now, what you've always done may be right, but as long as you've got some scientific rationale behind that, then I think I think you're in a very positive positive stance and a positive situation there. But again, if if someone challenges you with something that you've not actually thought of, that's actually good as well because that's only going to develop your practice. So the situation of having the hard conversations, positive or negative, is is a benefit in my opinion either way. Yeah, definitely. Now that's tough. I think. Delving into all that, I hope people can take plenty from it because they'll be in situations where um, they're having to create these relationships and I just hope people can take some of the aspects that we spoke about in there because I think there's some really critical points in there that, that people can take away. But just to go into you, Harry, like now you're back and obviously in the Northwest, like what, what are the plans going forward now? Just trying to look for that next opportunity. Um, obviously, trying to want to try and work in football where I can and sort of keep my keep my eye in football. It's I, I love, like I say, I loved every second of it over in um, in LA and working with some brilliant people. But like I say, family sort of comes comes a little bit more important now. So um, yeah, I'm just speaking to a lot of people and sort of networking and still trying to learn and taking this time to reflect on my, on, on what I have done. Um, I know that when we when we're in this all the time, you sort of don't get, you think you're reflecting on what you've done, but you never really get the chance to actually sit back and go, okay, so I, I've done X, Y, Z. Is that the right way to do it? And have conversations with people. That's what I'm doing a lot of at the minute, just sort of learning from other people about how I, the practice I've done and how I go about things and whether I can be better. I think we can always get better at what we do. Um, and I'm sort of using my opportunity now to continue to try and get better at what I do and, and build myself as a practitioner because I don't know all the answers and a lot of us don't know all the answers, but I'll strive to make myself better. And hopefully by having those connections with other people and learning from others, I'll, I'll continue to get better and grow. 
I think that's a great point in terms of the reflection because it is very hard, isn't it, when you're stuck in it day to day and and you do probably think that you do reflect, but then when you come out of it completely or you get another, another person's view on something, it can be very different, can't it? Absolutely. And like I say, some of my best reflections have been from going across different cultures because would I have done things the way I do now hadn't I put myself in those situations? Maybe not. But I can reflect now on what I have done and go, maybe that is right, but maybe what I did in Australia and what I did in America are two totally different things. So which is the right way to do things? Again, I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I think we can definitely work on on how we go about a lot of our practice. And that only really happens when you get the chance to reflect. Yeah, well doubt. Well, that's been awesome, mate. I've I really enjoyed it. I think there's loads of takeaways from it. Um, and I hope everyone takes plenty away from it, which I'm sure they will. But if anyone's got any questions, where's the best place they can reach out to you? Uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, probably. Um, yeah, I'm pretty active on Twitter at the minute. Um, we've obviously just a lot of things that I'm reading and trying to influence. And LinkedIn, again, either, either one of those is a brilliant place to find me. And I'll, I'll try my best to get back to anyone who, who does drop me a message and like say, if anyone wants to jump on a call and discuss things further, then they're more than happy to do that. And do you know your Twitter handle, mate? Yeah, it's at H underscore Routledge. Awesome. So we'll post that out when the episode goes out. So if you're not giving, if you're not following Harry already, give him a follow and reach out. If you've got any questions on anything, it'd be great to get feedback on the episode and, and to hear what you guys think as well. Um, like I say, people will be able to... Now, I'm pretty sure everyone won't be able to go through the same um, experience of, of being in a blank canvas in an MLS franchise, but there will be plenty of takeaways that people can relate to their sort of situation going into new clubs or, or some of the cultural stuff that we spoke about in, in terms of building with players and staff. So I really appreciate you coming on, mate. I think there's been some great stuff in there. Awesome, Ben. appreciate it. And one thing I will say before I finish is if anyone does get the opportunity to go abroad and work in different cultures it's only going to try and benefit your practice. That I can 100% agree with. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time and uh, we'll stay in touch and catch up soon. Appreciate it. Cheers, Ben. Thanks, mate. Another big thank you for Harry for coming on and giving up his time. It was great to have him on. You can go and follow him on Twitter. He's at H underscore Routledge. Um, so go and give him a follow. And if you've got any questions, I'm sure he'll be delighted to delve into some conversations as well. So reach out to him, drop him a message, give him a bit of feedback on the podcast, what you took away from it. Um, and then if you've got any questions, take that to him as well. I think some of mine were where he talked about what does the manager want from sports science. So obviously the way it worked over in the MLS, creating a new franchise, um, that was one of the initial questions that went through his mind, not just putting something in place, but working down from the manager because obviously they're the people we want to tie in with, they're the ones we want the relationships with, and we've got to try and work out what they want from the sports science department. The initial priorities he spoke about, so where he talked about building the aerobic base, the high-speed running, the GPS, basic movements in terms of S&C, the recovery nutrition protocols they put in place, that was the starting point. And then obviously they were able to amend things going forward as they learned more about the game model, uh, the way the players were playing and what the manager wanted to. The three, stake, um, three key stakeholders as well, um, and that's been mentioned on a few previous episodes, uh, going way back to the episode with Damien Hughes, but he talked about the captain, the head coach, 
and he talked about Darren Burgess as well um, and I think it's important to highlight that at your club who are the key stakeholders who are the ones that you want to influence um, and the, the ones that are going to make those key decisions and then just to tie in with that talking about having the hard conversations and this isn't I hope as an industry we're getting better at this now and I hope that we're contributing to this a little bit but not all hard conversations have to turn into slagging matches and and big disagreements where we don't get anything from them. We should be able to have hard conversations where we question people's work, we give rationales behind it, and then we come up with a good solution to go forward. Um, and that's what Harry was touching on as well. So I think there was loads of takeaways from this one. I said to him after it, I think there was so much information in there and I hope you guys take plenty from it as well. Um, yeah, and reach out, let us know what you think. You can drop us an email, mail at footballfitfed.com or whack it on Twitter or Instagram. We're at footballfitfed. Um, and like I say, there's going to be another podcast coming out this week. So we are going to be releasing two a week just while we're in this lockdown period just to give you as much information um, and stuff to be doing, cracking on with in this time where you might have a little bit more free time. So extra podcasts, hopefully hopefully some extra content as well on the community. So if you are already a community member, make sure you log in, get involved in the discussions, in the forum. Um, you can add forum posts if you've got any questions. We've had a few coaches posting a few questions to people recently as well. We want more and more of that. And if you're not a member, sign up, footballfitfed.com. Uh, click the community tab, sign up, you get a free month and it is only £4.99 after that. Again, thank you very much for listening. If you could do us a huge favour and head over to iTunes, leave us a review. That helps to boost us up. It helps us to get us more interested in the podcast. Keep these really good quality guests coming and we'll speak to you again later this week with the second episode of the week. <laughs>